Our reading is from Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. When Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Well, as we reach the final story of chapter 8 of Matthew, we're confronted with yet more evidence of Jesus' power and his control. We've seen miraculous healing, we've seen Jesus in total control over a storm, and now we see him in control over demons. Now, the other situations that Jesus has dealt with so far have been ones that I uh, think we can understand and we can recognize We all know what it's like to be ill. Uh, We all know what it's like to see someone who we love suffering with illness and injury or pain. So we can picture the reality of those struggles and we can try to imagine what it must have been like to see Jesus heal with a word or a touch. Uh, We also all know what bad weather is, um, less so this week. Um, We've seen storms. We've probably been in them as well. And we've experienced a little of the fear that comes from seeing the awesome power of nature. Um, I vividly remember uh, one afternoon about 25 years ago up on the top of Skidder with my dad when we found ourselves in the middle of a thunderstorm. Um, Our hair stood up on end uh, because of the electricity in the air. The heavens opened and dumped about a week's worth of rain on our heads. And as we made our way quite quickly down from the top. I remember watching the lightning strike the edge of Blancathra and steam and smoke rising from it and where it hit. It was exciting. It was also scary. Um, And the knowledge that Jesus could end a storm like that immediately and completely with just a couple of words um, of command is awe-inspiring, isn't it? We know what power looks like And to see the power of Jesus come up against things that can and would crush us is incredible. But when we come to today's passage, we're a little bit more out of our depth and a great deal out of the experience of most of us. Today we're talking about Jesus confronting true evil in the form of demon possession. This is a story about total evil. And the first clue that something very different is about to occur comes with the location. Jesus and his disciples have made their way across the lake. And as this section opens, we're told they've arrived at the other side 
in the region of the Gadarenes, somewhere on the southeast of the lake. The area was one where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, lived, um, the extra clue for which is the presence of a large herd of pigs. Pork, as you probably know, was a forbidden meat for Jewish people then, as it is now, and so there's no way a town of Jewish people would have been pig farmers. There was probably a degree of fear in the hearts of the disciples um, entering into this territory. Uh, The separation of Jewish and Gentile people was significant. Jewish people avoided interacting with Gentiles. Um, Business, socializing, eating especially was out of the question because of the belief that to do so would make one spiritually unclean. Jewish men went out of their way to avoid that fate And yet in this section of Matthew's gospel, there are so many things that could make them unclean. The pigs, the people, the tombs um, with dead people, and obviously the demons. Matthew describes this place as the other side. And sure, partly that's a kind of simple geographical description, but partly it's metaphorical as well. This is the other side. This is territory that Satan thinks belongs to him. It's why the demons have taken up residence there. It's a scary and a hostile place. And yet, despite all of this, Jesus has still decided to bring them there. Why? Well, partly, I think, because his message is not just for the Jewish people. As we saw on Monday, when Matthew drew our attention to that prophecy from Isaiah 53, he is the promised servant of the Lord. One of the things that we learn in Isaiah is that the task of merely rescuing and restoring Israel is much, much too small a job for the Lord's servant. God has a much bigger task for him. He has been sent to bring all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, to a restored relationship with the Lord. And this is just one of the glimpses of that mission that Matthew lets us see. The focus for most of the gospel is on Jesus' mission to Israel, but there are a few clues that of what's to come. And this is just one of them as he brings the disciples into Gentile territory. And of course, they are now face-to-face with total evil, demons. Now, we don't get lots of detail from Matthew. In the other Gospels, where the same or a similar story is told, we get much more information about the demons, what they're like, and what they're trying to do. Matthew isn't actually concerned with telling us that information, but we get a couple of clues for what was going on. Firstly, They came from the tombs. In that time and area, wealthy families would use uh, lower, deeper parts of caves as tombs for several generations of their family, um, leaving the top part of the cave empty. Um, This, in turn, enabled the tombs to be used as a terrible but necessary shelter from the elements for people who were otherwise cut off from their family and regular society. Anybody who was an outcast might be living here. Anyone who was unclean 
uh, lepers, perhaps, or in this case, uh, two men who are possessed by demons. The isolation for them would have been terrible, as would their desolate and primitive living conditions. And the second clue for the seriousness of this evil comes from that one sentence in verse 28. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. These demons tortured the men they were possessing. They caused them physical and spiritual violence. And they caused them to enact violence on anyone who tried to come close. This demonic possession was affecting these men and their families, and everyone else in the town and the local area. Demonic possession meant anguish for the men, torture and violence and separation from everybody who they loved, and it meant terror for the locals. The strength and violence and fear had made this area somewhere where nobody could go. Now, our culture sometimes makes evil out to be exciting or interesting, but this story is very far from that idea. We are encouraged by our culture and our society to treat demonic power as something laughable and exciting and fictional, but it really isn't. It's not fun, it's not a joke, and it is very, very real. And this story helps to clarify that point, doesn't it? There's nothing amusing or exciting or imagined about torture and isolation like this. However, as well as our culture misunderstanding the seriousness of the demonic, it sometimes also overestimates the power of the demonic. Um, In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis helpfully uh, wrote this line. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Sometimes we are fooled into thinking that evil and good or the devil and God are two opposite but equal sides of the same coin. But there is actually no contest here because as we have already seen in Matthew 8, Jesus comes with total power. These demons know who Jesus is and they also know the power that he holds and they are rightly afraid. One commentator points out that whenever Satan or his demons appear in Matthew, they wear the faces of defeat. And this is certainly true here. They open with a declaration about who Jesus is, calling him Son of God. That's striking that so far in the gospel, he's been given that title twice. Uh, Once by the Father himself at his baptism... And then immediately afterwards, when he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Despite all that the disciples and others have witnessed of Jesus in this chapter, and all that they have heard from him, they still haven't made that connection about who he really is. These demons have, 
but knowledge doesn't equal worship. They recognize who he is, but they have no intention of submitting to his lordship over them. It's possible that their loud declaration of his identity was actually an attempt at a power play. There was an idea in the ancient world that if you knew someone's true name, then you had some level of power over them, um, like a kind of demonic version of the fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin, if you remember that one. They think that by revealing Jesus' identity, they will win the battle. And yet, it's very clear that they also understand who's really in control based on the rest of their comment. They say, what do you want with us? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? These questions show us clearly where all of the true power lies, and it is not with these demons. In the book of Revelation, we get a bit more of an explanation about what is going on behind the scenes with demons and angels and the Lord. Revelation 12 verse 12 tells us that the devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He and his demons had already lost and they knew that and so they raged against God and tormented his creation. That is part of what is happening even in this encounter in Matthew 8. But the demons knew very clearly what was coming. They are facing an inevitable and certain fate. The final judgment against them, which we read about in Revelation 19 and 20, where they are thrown into a fiery lake of burning sulfur. These demons know their ultimate fate And they know exactly who it is who is going to enact that fate. Listen to how John describes him in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Lord Jesus. And even though in this moment on the road to the tombs on the southeast shore of Lake Galilee, he doesn't have a white horse or many crowns, or a robe dipped in blood, he is still the word of God. He is still the king of kings and the lord of lords, and these demons recognize him at once. And they're surprised. They don't think it's time for the final judgment yet, and so they are confused about why Jesus is here. The fact that he has found them, even in Gentile country, to them implies that he was about to kick off 
that final judgment early. Like many of the Jewish people he is meeting and interacting with, they have misunderstood what is actually happening. They've assumed that the Messiah's arrival is going to immediately launch that final battle. But it turns out that the Lord has other plans. He's got other things to do first. Before the time of final judgment arrives, another moment of judgment is going to occur. And it is going to fall on Jesus' shoulders. One day, these demons are going to face full and total judgment. One day, things are going to be put right once and for all. But for the moment and in the meantime, Jesus is not content to leave these men to their torment. The contrast between Jesus and these demons could not be more stark. They rage and shout. They try to use his identity against him. They even beg him, demanding an alternative fate to the one they have assumed that he will assign them. And all the while, Jesus is silent. There is no need for him to respond. There's no need for him to engage as if they are on an equal footing. He has all the power and all the control, and in response to their many words, he says just one, go, and they do. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He has all power and authority over sickness and storms, and here demons. So, brothers and sisters, when you're tempted to fear, hold on to that truth. Jesus has already won And he is always in control. Nothing can or will stand against him. So we see in those demons total evil. And we've seen in Jesus total power. But what is the effect of his power? Well, for the men and for those who loved them, there is the relief of deliverance. Once again... Matthew doesn't labor this point or go into much detail at all. His concern um, and his focus is on the power of Jesus rather than the reaction of the men. But let's acknowledge what he's done for them and the significance of that in light of who he is. He has delivered them because he is the servant of the Lord and that is what the servant has come to do. When we look at more of the Isaiah passages, we see that worked out. Isaiah 42 tells us that the servant of the Lord is sent to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. What better way to describe the pain of possession than a dark dungeon? These men have been in captivity to this total evil. They were enslaved to the torment and the torture of these demons. But Jesus has come in and delivered them with just one word. Now, most of us won't really have a sense of what it means to be imprisoned um, or in captivity. 
We might have had a little taste of it with self-isolation and quarantine, but it doesn't really compare to being set free from prison or slavery, does it? Let us then consider the story of the Israelites, enslaved in Egypt, forced into backbreaking labor, and refused any escape or relief. The Lord God saw their torment and pain and demanded their release. He said, let my people go. And here Jesus says it again with that one word, go. By casting out those demons, he sets the men free from slavery and pain. He frees them from their burden and gives them back a home and a family and a life. The immediate fate of those demons is a bit of a surprise to our modern ears, isn't it? And perhaps especially unsettling to any vegetarians or vegans in the room. Um, Where I live in London is the kind of area that the kids today refer to as bougie. Um, It's pretty fancy. It's kind of cool. Um, And that means there is no shortage of weird and wonderful activities um, to entertain and amuse. Uh, My friend Katie recently went on one such activity. Um, It was a life-drawing class uh, where the models were very sweet-looking micro-pigs. Now, I think she probably spent quite a bit more time cuddling the pigs than she did drawing them. And has very much fallen in love with the idea of getting one as a pet. Um, unfortunately, that's not quite the thing in a central London flat, and so she's had to settle for a hamster instead. Um, now, I can tell you for pretty certain that this story is not one of her favourites. But even if you're not particularly an animal lover, there is some, still something a bit shocking about this moment, isn't there? And yet, it also demonstrates quite starkly both the destructive nature of these demons and the degree to which Jesus values these two men. The same demons who cause such terror and destruction to this herd of pigs, so much terror and destruction that they hurl themselves to their own deaths, that same, those same demons had up until this point been living within these two men. Seeing the effect that the demons have on the pigs gives us a little more insight into what they must have been doing to those men. And there is no way that Jesus was going to leave those men to that torture and anguish. The Lord loves the whole of his creation. But humanity is his most precious and treasured possession. And he will not stand for what is happening to these two men. And so with a word, he sets them free. The pigs are destroyed in a quick but terrible moment. And it would have been terrible to see. But for the men, it is a moment of total and perfect relief. They have been set free. And the whole region, in fact, has been set free as well, hasn't it? Uh, Matthew tells us that the whole area had become off limits because of these demons. The possessed men were being forced into such violence that no one could pass by that way. 
no one could go near them or even near that place. Some of us will know what that's like to live in places where certain areas have become off limits because of gangs or dealers or other crime. A street that has become one that you can't walk down. A park has become somewhere where you can't let your children play. It becomes a burden, a weight, something that shapes our daily lives and holds us in captivity. And this was the case in this region until Jesus arrived and set them free. He is the Lord. He is the deliverer. And I think, therefore, we expect the response to that rescue to be full of celebration and rejoicing. We expect delight as the news makes its way to the local town. But we actually get a very different response. What we see is the surprise of rejection. The people from the local area are called to come by reports of what has happened to the men and the pigs, and their response is to beg Jesus to leave. And we're a bit surprised by that, aren't we? That doesn't seem like the right response to what has just happened. It isn't the right response to what has just happened. So why is that the response? Well, maybe it's because of material concerns. Their whole herd of pigs has just been destroyed, and perhaps they're angry about that, which is to some extent understandable. But I don't actually think that's what's really going on. It seems more likely, especially when we read this same story in other gospel accounts, that the reason for their rejection of Jesus is actually because of fear. They have seen his power and authority and they are afraid. Now, to be afraid in this circumstance is actually a perfectly reasonable response. To have seen the level of destruction and evil that was at work in those possessed men, and then to know that Jesus had been able to deliver them with just one word is a clear indication of his astounding power, as we've already seen. And power can be frightening. That they are are afraid is not a surprise. The surprise is what they do with that fear. Because once again, this power expressed by Jesus is not power in and of itself. It's not a show of strength or for his own sake. It's not selfish or oppressive. It's full of compassion and mercy for those men who were undergoing such grievous torment and suffering. This power was expressed in order that they, and the townspeople as well, might be set free from a destructive evil that had been holding them hostage. Jesus' power is mighty, but it's also good. The right response to that is worship. But that is not what we see from these people. They don't want to worship Jesus. They want to send him far away. His power, even though it is kind and compassionate and good, is not something that they want to acknowledge or submit to. And so they beg him to leave. There is something unsettlingly similar to their response as the response of the demons. They know who this is. They have seen his power, 
and yet knowledge doesn't turn to worship. And Jesus' response shows us more of what his kind of power is like. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. This region, like the rest of the world, is his creation, spoken into existence by his words. These townspeople have no right to beg or plead or demand that he leave, and yet he does anyway. He will not force them to worship him. There will be a day that comes when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But that day is not today. And so Jesus departs and he takes his disciples and they head back over to the other side again. The homeless king back on the road. Friends, as we come towards the end this evening, I would like us to think about application again. Matthew, as always, is showing us Jesus, but what does he want us to see? How does he want us to respond? Firstly, I think we're supposed to respond by not rejecting Jesus. This section of Matthew offers us a kind of how not to guide for how to respond to the Lord. When faced with the reality of the power and might and authority and deliverance and mercy of Jesus, the townspeople reject him. Do not be like them. If you are listening tonight and you are wavering or still making up your mind or thinking that you can sit on the fence on this issue, please recognize that that is not an option that is open to you. There are only two ways to respond, worship or rejection. And worship is the best and most reasonable response. He is powerful and he is good. There is no one and no thing better. And for, for those of us who have already made that decision, let us keep making it. Let us keep worshipping him. Let's see his power, see his compassion, and be drawn again to worship and praise him, for he is worthy. The second application, I think, is do be like the disciples were. Go to scary places knowing that you're going there with Jesus. As we thought about with Nerv on Tuesday, the cost of following Jesus is very, very high. He is the homeless son of man. He goes to hard and difficult places. In this instance, he goes to people whose homes were tombs, who lived amongst the dead, and he sets them free. The disciples would have been terrified to go to a region where God's people were absent to go to a place where death and evil and terror were present and obvious and loud. And yet, following Jesus meant doing those sorts of things. It meant it then, and it means it now. The cost of following Jesus is high. Just as people rejected Jesus then, they will and do reject him today. And they will sometimes reject us too because we are following him.
It is a high cost, but it is also worth it. The disciples did not need to be afraid in the boat because Jesus was with them and he was in control. And they didn't need to be afraid in the tombs because Jesus was with them and he was in control. Following Jesus, the homeless son of man will sometimes be scary and hard and lonely, but Jesus is with you. He will keep you and he will never leave you. He is worthy, so let's worship him. Let me pray for us as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is worthy. And we thank you that you are with us by your spirit. That when we do go into hard places and lonely places, you are with us and you will never leave us. Father, please will you help us to trust you in those times when we are afraid. Help us to know that you are with us and that you are in control. And Father, please will you help us to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.